It's the Healthy Woman Show on WJR with Ann Thomas and Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, presented by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. Welcome to WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. I'm Ann Thomas, and on the June edition of the show, with COVID restrictions loosening, it looks like Michigan is going to have a very strong festival season. Voting in Michigan is also in full swing. We'll talk about the importance of women learning to operate a boat. And June is Men's Health Month, so we'll spend some time talking about the importance of regular doctor's visits for the men in our lives. Lots of great information to kick off your summer coming up next. Welcome to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. I'm Ann Thomas, and with summer just around the corner and COVID guidelines rapidly changing, it looks like Michigan's festival season is going to be in full swing. Here to talk about this great news is Mike Sukent, President and CEO of the Michigan Festivals and Events Association. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ann. I appreciate being invited. And Mike, you join us today with really great news. It looks like it's going to be a lot of fun here in Michigan this summer. And our mantra ever since our convention this past November was we were bringing back the fun in 2021 and it is happening. Oh, that's so great. So what are some of the big festivals that we did not think were going to come back this year that are in fact going to happen, Mike? And the list is a lot shorter if I tell you those that aren't happening. Oh, wow. Okay, next. Give us the ones that aren't happening then. (laughs) I just did. Everything's happening. Uh, Some of the smaller events had canceled for various reasons, uh, whether or not uh, it was too close to, to to start the planning on it. Uh, or the municipality didn't feel comfortable with with what was going on. Uh, If you look at our website, michiganfund.com, I think there are only two events in June that have canceled, and nothing else has canceled for the month of June nor July. Even the National Cherry Festival is going on um, up in Traverse City. Holland had tulip time uh, last month that went off. My wife and I attended uh, Swartz Creek Hometown Days Friday, and it was absolutely phenomenal. Um, coworker uh, went to uh, Kerwood Festival in Owasso and said it was fantastic. My wife and I went to the Flushing Women's Club Art in the Park Saturday, and it was packed. The uh, all the everything from May that went on said that it was record-breaking events. Not record-breaking compared to last year, record-breaking events. People are tired of being cooped up in their homes and they're they're getting out. Now the crowds are a little less than normal. We're, We're not back to normal yet. We probably won't get back to normal until next year. There are still a number of people that um, aren't comfortable with getting out there. We understand that, everybody understands that. But the people that are out there, they're spending money. Uh, they're buying gifts at the craft bazaars. They're uh, uh, buying food, the vendors. And 
And one of the things that we've talked about here at Michigan Festivals and Events is that we are a major contributor. When I say we, as an industry, a major economic contributor to the state of Michigan. We represent over a billion dollars of economic impact, starting with Small Town USA. So when a festival comes into town or a fair or a carnival comes into town, people come into town. The local businesses feel that boom, whether it's the restaurants, the bars, the gift shops, the grocery stores, everybody is feeling the boom from that. And many of the local downtowns depend on that event for their livelihood. Well, you know, Mike, we were at, my husband and I were at Art on the Grand mm -hmm. in Farmington over the weekend, and we too could not believe the number of people that are out and about, and they're buying. I mean, the little stalls where the artists were showing their wares were really busy. And, you know, we talked all throughout the pandemic about supporting Michigan, and it sounds like people are listening. Uh, Memorial Day weekend, we were in Tawas for Art on the Bay, and the vendors underestimated the amount of inventory they needed to bring because a lot of them were out of inventory by Sunday. That's incredible. The other thing we noticed was that at first, the Ann Arbor Art Fair was off, and then all of a sudden, as the guidelines were loosened, restrictions loosened, they changed their mind and they're able to put it on. What great news for the state of Michigan. Oh, it is fantastic. And in our June newsletter, I actually did a video for those events that are suffering from cancellation remorse that it go for it. Because the other thing that we're noticing is that the festivals and events are seeing a boom in sponsorship because the local businesses want to have these events going on in their town. So they're experiencing vendor or uh, vendor sponsors that have never sponsored before. They're coming on board because everybody wants to see the festivals and events come back. Isn't that incredible? Now, what about any COVID guidelines? Is there anything that you want people to know this summer, Mike, Sue Kent, when they do go to a festival? We're still asking that everyone uh, adheres to the standards. If you're not comfortable, wear a mask. If you're not vaccinated, wear a mask. Uh, practice social distancing uh, and uh, hand washing. You know, and, and all the vendors and all of the uh, uh, food vendors and everybody, they're already adhering to that because those are health department guidelines. Mike, I hope you go out and have a wonderful, fun summer. I'm looking forward to it, Ann. It's got to be. I hope everybody does. It's got to be just so exciting for you. <clears throat> Everything's exciting compared to what 2020 was. <laughs> Absolutely. Mike Sukent, President and CEO of the Michigan Festivals and Events Association. Thank you so much for the time today. I appreciate it, Ann. And if anybody wants any additional information, michiganfun.com. I love it. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. We'll be back right after these messages. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. I'm Ann Thomas, and now we say hello to Tom Irvin, 
president of Wallstrom Marine, and Tom is here to talk about his very popular boating lessons for women. Nice to see you, Tom. Thanks, Ann. Good to speak with you and uh, to be on your show this morning. And you know, Tom, I remember when we first talked about this concept several years ago now up at Harbor Springs, and I never even realized, well, yeah, women should really think about taking boating lessons if they own a boat. So start from the beginning and explain to our listeners how this all got started. Sure. I, I, I've been part of this program and conducting these classes since 2006. So this will be my 15th summer of, of uh, conducting women in boating classes. And it all started with, uh, with some ladies who, uh, who approached me probably uh, close to 20 years ago and, and asked for some private instruction on, first of all, how to, how to read electronics, um, then how to handle the boat. Um, and then we had several ladies that, that purchased boats on their own and we started training them as well. Um, and that led to the boating classes that we, the women in boating classes that we conduct today. And we're coming up I think this summer will actually, I'll actually pass. I think I'm at about 960 ladies have been through the class in 15 years. And I think we'll be over a thousand before the summer's over. It's incredible. Now, what are some of the things that they learn in these classes? You take them, you take them on the water too, right? We do. It's, it's a two part, two part course. It's, um, usually about four to six hours on a Saturday. The first part of the course is spent in the, in a classroom setting where first of all we get to know each other we talk a lot about about boating experiences and and then we get into some practical simple um, boating knowledge which is terminology line handling how to tie up how to tie a boat to the dock um, simple boat operation and handling that we can talk about in a classroom we spend a lot of time on safety, just simple safety rules. And then we also talk about the rules of the water. Even though there's there's no white or yellow lines out there on the lake, there are some rules that everyone should know and should abide by. And we also talk about some, some proper boating etiquette. Now, what did the women say to you? Why did they decide to take the class, Tom? There's a variety of reasons, but uh, probably the most common that I'm finding is they have a significant other that all of a sudden has this passion for boating, and they want to develop the same the same passion that their their husband or, or significant other may have, and and that starts with knowledge. And and you know we we talk in the class a lot about how knowledge is power, and and. We also talk about the, the things that the boating brings beyond just taking a boat ride. I, I spent this weekend at a, at a family event out of state and my, my adult children were there. And you know, the stories that they told to our family and friends that were around the table were the boating stories they had growing up. And we talk, we, we talk a lot about how boating, yeah, it's about being on the water and having fun, but it's really about making memories. And, and it, it was really special for me to sit and listen to my children on their own talking about their memories. And, you know, Tom, you and I both recognize that there are plenty of women out there that would just want to have a boat themselves, operate the boat, be very comfortable, 
owning and operating a boat, but there are other women out there that you point out their significant other, their spouse wanted the boat and they're kind of along for the ride. But one of the things that really struck me when we first talked about the whole concept was you saying, well, what happens if something uh, happens out on the water and you don't know how to get the boat back to shore? And that's probably the predominant question that I get, or if it's not a question, it's in 80% of the ladies' minds. If, if I'm not the operator or the captain of the vessel, what happens if something should happen? You know, if, if my significant other, you know, has a, 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 a bout of heat stroke, we've been out in the lake too long, what do I do? And we talk about emergency procedures, how to operate it with VHF radio, and then in the afternoon, we get to the, to the boat and we actually get on the water and the ladies handle the boat in the open water. And then they actually dock the boat, both pulling in forward and backing the boat into a slip. And we try and put the ladies in a boat very similar to what they, they, they commonly boat on or what they own. So when they're done, they walk away with this confidence that should something happen, I feel confident I can handle any situation that's thrown at me. And is that the feedback that you get? Do you have women that have come back to you and said, boy, I really needed these lessons. Thank you, Tom Irvin. Yeah, we have a lot of ladies that come back and I, I run into them all the time. And frankly, I, you know, when I'm coming up on a thousand, I don't remember some of them, but 10, 15 years later, they come up to me and remember the experience of the class and something something that was said or something special that might have happened that day. And it, it really, it, it's gratifying. Of all the things that I do in, in my position and my, my, my responsibilities and duties, this is the thing that I look most forward to each and every year is teaching these classes because the ladies are so eager to learn, they're so enthusiastic and they're so teachable. And they really, when they walk out, I think they've had a, a, a lot of fun they walk out with knowledge and they walk out with confidence. And you know, Tom Irvin, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that we are really looking forward to seeing you next week. Paul W. and myself and the WJR team, we get to get back out. We get to talk about boating at Wallstrom Marine in Harbor Springs. Yeah, and we're actually going to head, I'll, I'll spill the beans. We're actually going to do a little boat ride in and this is, this is Wallstrom Marine's 75th anniversary this year. And, and so we're exci so excited for you to come up and be part of this year's celebration. This is such a special time for us. And Tom, if women want to learn more about these classes or take these classes, how did they get the information? Uh, great question. And uh, go to Wallstrom, W-A-L-S-T-R-O-M.com. Our uh, complete schedule for this summer is online and the contact information is online as well. And you can contact us either via email or, or you can phone in. But uh, we're looking forward to seeing full classes as we always have each year. Well, we can't wait. We are really looking forward to the visit and we will see you next Thursday morning. Tom Irvin, president of Wallstrom Marine. Thanks again for the time today. I think I better take some of those boating lessons. Look forward to seeing you. Thanks. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. Coming up next, we are going to talk about men's health. We'll be back right after this. June is Men's Health Month, so we turn now to Dr. James Dupree, 
a Michigan medicine urologist with expertise in male infertility and reproductive health. Dr. Carroll, take it from here. You and I talked before that, you know, we women are always inundated with the need to get our exams and this and that, but our guys, what the heck is wrong with you guys? You never want to see a doctor. You never want to go get checked. You always think it's going to be okay. You always think that if you take two Advil and go to bed like my husband, that every ache and pain and everything is going to be good. So, so we want to talk about that. Um, and, but before that, um, I want to get a little idea about you and, and what got you into the field of urology and male fertility specifically. Yeah, thanks. And again, I really appreciate the invitation to join you all uh, on this really important show on this really important topic. So I became a urologist in large part because um, I really love surgical care. Urologists are surgeons. And I think that there is something really valuable and something really um, personally and professionally satisfying about being able to help people with their problems. And as a surgeon, it often is a very um, tangible, hands-on type of uh, solution or fix. It's not always surgery itself. We certainly prescribe medicines and do other sorts of lifestyle recommendations that can help improve the life of people, but the ability to surgically fix a problem for something uh, for someone really is, a, I think, a wonderful way that I can hopefully contribute to, to happier and healthier people in the world. In urology, you know, we do a lot of care that's admittedly very sensitive. We deal with parts of the body that are very sensitive, and I think what I, when I was going through medical school, I found urologists that I interacted with were people that I felt like, hey, I feel like I get along with them. You know, they tend to have a decent sense of humor um, and they tend to be pretty good people. I was like, I can be like one of them. (laughs) And then when I got deeper into the field, I realized that they offered this chance within urology to specifically focus on male fertility um, and on reproductive health. And, you know, listen, my dad had prostate cancer. And so I have all the respect in the world for the cancer surgeons of, of of our country. But I think to be able to help a couple build their family is a really special thing. And so I got really drawn to that particular topic. I really wanted to be someone that could help men and their partners, you know, build their families. And so that's really what drew me to urology and then also drew me in particular to the male infertility portion of our field. Well, you do have a cool sense of humor. I got to tell you that. And you're very, uh, you're very normal, which I love. Uh, I love normal and very personable. So I, I really enjoy the ability to work with you. Uh, so, so the first segment with you is going to be general health. And back to that dang husbands, partners, boyfriends, fathers, uncles, you know, what the heck is going on with you guys? Why will you not see a doctor? You know, my husband will have a, you know, chest pain. I'm like, you need to go to the ER. No, I'll take a Tylenol. I'm like, come on, boys, what is the deal? What is the deal with you men and doctors? Yeah, uh, you know, man, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I think some of those are just sort of longstanding, kind of cultural, societal things that are are present in America. Um, I think some of that is, I can't help but wonder if some of that isn't the fact that when, you know, men and women go through puberty, their bodies change in different ways. And in particular, you know, I think many women, when they go through puberty, start for the first time thinking about or seeing an obstetrician or a gynecologist. And there really isn't, a, frankly, a need for men to start doing that when they go through puberty. And so those habits are not established early on in the same way that I think they're established early on for many, for many women. Um, beyond that, yeah, I mean, it just might be some of that machismo, that sort of old standing um, or longstanding uh, sense of, of macho-ness that you know, things will just get better if I ignore it or things will just get better if I, uh, you know, as you said, take an Advil. And we all know that that's just not the case for many, many aspects. And so 
an important question. And but gosh, Dr. Kowalczyk, I wish I had a better answer for you, but that's the best I can think of. I, what do you think? Do you think it's fear factor? Some of it might be. Yeah, some of it could, could be fear factor. And I think we all are afraid of learning that something is wrong with us. And and sometimes living in the uncertainty is easier than finding out the truth if it does mean that something's wrong. But you know what I experience a lot with men is they come in very afraid of what I might tell them. But but oftentimes, 80% of the time, I can offer them a ton of reassurance and they leave the office feeling much better. And so as scary as it may be to go in and and, and, and put your hands or put yourself into the hands of somebody else to understand what's happening. Most of the time, thankfully for many men, it's nothing serious and that we can offer them a lot of reassurance and they actually sleep better at night. So that fear you know, can, can cause inhibition for a lot of people, unfortunately. So how often should men go to the doctor? Well, first of all, men should go to the doctor anytime they feel like something is wrong. So for your husband that had chest pain, yes, he should go to the doctor. That's not normal. Um, and I know you told him the same yourself. Yes. Um, and, um, and so, you know, in particular, as a urologist, what I tell people is, you know, men should be examining their testicles every month, much like we tell women to examine their breasts every month. And so if you start to feel that something is changing, there's a new lump or a new mass, please go see your doctor. Or if you just feel like something else is not right with your body, go see your doctor. And if your doctor is offered to just able to tell you it's okay and offer you some reassurance, well, that's a pretty great outcome. Short of that, you know, when men are in their 20s and 30s, they probably should go and see their doctor, you know, every couple of years, check your cholesterol, check your body weight, check your blood pressure, check things that are going to be really important for the rest of your health later on. And when men get up into their 50s and 60s, at least from a urologic perspective, we often recommend you know, a prostate check every year or two, depending on their family history and other risk factors. Got it. And what are men at risk for as they age, urologically speaking? Yeah, so when men are younger, and I, by younger, I say, let's start with 18 to maybe 30-year-olds, you know, some, one of the most scary things that they're at risk for is testicular cancer. So that's the age range when most people get testicular cancers when they're in their 20s and 30s. So that's why we are so vigilant about recommending those testicular self-exams. Um, men, as they go through puberty and start to become sexually active, are also at risk for sexually transmitted infections. And so that's why we always emphasize barrier contraception, like condoms. Um, and then as men get older, out into their 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, you know, there's an inevitable normal growth of the prostate as men get older. So some men start have, having trouble urinating as they get older. Older men are also more at risk for erectile dysfunction, having trouble getting erections. That is often because of, um, you know, blood pressure problems, cholesterol problems, body weight problems. Um, and then when men get into their probably 50s, 60s, 70s, they're also at risk for prostate cancer, um, depending on their sort of personal and family histories. So prostate cancer, I hear about PSAs. What is a PSA and, and when should guys need to get them? Yeah, so a PSA is a, is a blood test. It stands for prostate-specific antigen. And it's really easy. It's just a simple blood test. Um, and um, different organizations have different recommendations in terms of when to start them. And so the best thing for you to do is to talk to your primary care doctor about your personal and family history to determine when's the right time to start for you. And then um, uh, absent that, the American Neurological Association recommends that men at around the age of 50 or 55 start getting a PSA check. Um, men that have a personal family history of prostate cancer and African-American men 
Both have higher risks and are often recommended to start younger around the age of 45. Got it. And do you have any questions? Yes, I do. What is the latest guidance on how to treat prostate cancer once somebody has been diagnosed, Dr. Dupree? So that's a really important question, and I think our field has made some really important discoveries over the past 10 plus years. And what we have found is that there are, broadly speaking, two types of prostate cancer. There is a less aggressive type that can be watched and observed carefully um, that does not require any surgery or radiation. And then there's a more aggressive type that um, does often, uh, usually is recommended to have either surgery or radiation for treatments. And uh, based on the PSA test and based on the biopsy results, your doctor would be able to tell you, do you have a type of prostate cancer that can be watched and observed carefully or one that's gonna require something like surgery or radiation? Does it also depend on age too? So if you have a patient who comes in with prostate cancer at a younger age, do you do something different compared to one who comes in at an older age? Age can play a factor, as can other comorbidities. And so whether someone has a bad heart disease, bad lung disease, or something else that, to be frank about it, might end their life sooner, sure. those other factors come into play as well. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. We will continue this conversation, this great conversation, with Dr. Jim Dupree, a Michigan medicine urologist, in just a few minutes. And in this next segment, stay tuned, we are going to talk about male infertility. We'll be back right after this. The conversation continues now with Dr. James Dupree, a Michigan medicine urologist with expertise in male infertility and reproductive health. Dr. Carroll, you start first. And Jim and I have been very uh, very, we have a, a, a very, very great relationship with each other. He's as passionate about male fertility as I am about uh, you know, the women's uh, piece. And the communication is incredible. I mean, I love telling people this, Jim, is, is as soon as you're done seeing my patient, I'm getting a text on my phone about your plan. So that just shows how passionate you are. And uh, I just wanted to welcome you to this segment and focus a little bit about about what we do together and, and what you do as a, as a male fertility specialist. So are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So um, I wanted to find out exactly, uh, in your opinion, how common is male fertility when we have couples that we work together to help try to get pregnant? Yeah. So it's actually very common. And I think that as we go back and look 20 to 30 years in the history of our country, I think there was a probably I would say a misconception at the time that fertility issues were usually on the female side of things. And we just know that that's just not true. So we know at a, at a, at a national level, about one in eight couples has trouble conceiving. And that we know that when couples come in to um, get a fertility evaluation, around 20% of the time or so, the, we find that it is solely an issue on the male side. But we also find that at an additional maybe 30% of the time, both the male and the female partner are bringing something to the table that makes it trouble, uh, makes it harder to get pregnant. And so I'd say about half the time, the male is involved in the reason for the couple having trouble getting pregnant. So it's about 50-50, and which is way more common than I think people used to think of decades ago. And, and you're right. I mean, when I first was, came out of fellowship and I was training, I many times saw that the woman 
was getting her evaluation and then the GYN was starting the patient on fertility drugs and then the patient would get to me and there'd not be a semen analysis. And they would have gone through six, nine months of treatment and I'd get a semen analysis and the sperm counts low. And, and all of those months of treatment were potentially in vain. So, so now when we see a couple, what I tell patients is that it's hormone, sperm, and structure. When you come in for an evaluation, we're getting a hormone level on the woman, we're getting structural evaluation on her uterus and tubes, but we're also getting a semen analysis uh, at the same time to make sure we have all pieces of the triangle so that we can put it all together and figure out a game plan. So what is the most common problem you see when it comes to male fertility? Yeah, so there's a couple that, that show up as the most common causes of male fertility. So uh, one of the most common, uh, at least surgically correctable causes is what's called a varicocele, which is an enlargement of the veins in the scrotum. If y'all in the audience have heard of men or women having varicose veins in their legs, this is like a varicose vein that happens in the scrotum. So that's really common among uh, men with fertility issues. It happens, we think, about 40% of the time. Men can also have abnormal hormones that cause fertility problems. Um, they can have blockages that cause fertility problems or have, um, frankly, lifestyle factors like tobacco or marijuana consumption, um, being overweight or excessive alcohol use or other factors that can cause fertility issues for men as well. So overweight. Um, I usually will talk to the guys about the fact that the testicles are down there for a reason, and so they need to be cooler. Uh, but when you're overweight, a lot of guys get this panis or this abdominal obesity. Um, so, you know, one of it might be, you know, temperature related, but, uh, and I speak about the overweight because, you know, in America, a significant portion of men and women are overweight. And so can you kind of connect how that affects sperm quality? Right. And so it's probably many factors. I think the heat that you described is certainly one. So you can imagine if the testicles have too much insulation around them because the thighs or the belly are bigger, that's something that could be a problem. Also, in all of our fat cells for both men and women, we have an enzyme that turns testosterone into estrogen. And so we know that men that are overweight tend to have a higher, have more estrogen than they should compared to their testosterone levels. And so being overweight can lead to a hormone imbalance for men. And the third thing that I, is that um, being overweight can also cause um, an inflammatory state in the body. And so um, the body can have increased um, uh, what we call inflammatory markers that we see. And there's probably some link between that inflammation and uh, worse sperm production as well. So there's multiple factors that can be uh, a cause. Got it. So let's talk about sex. So we talked in the first issue about as men get older, there's sexual dysfunction and there's many reasons potentially for sexual dysfunction. So can you highlight a little bit about you know, the impact, what, what causes sexual dysfunction? And many times when you go to their primary care or you're looking on the commercials, are you tired? Do you have a low libido? Take testosterone, testosterone supplements. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what can cause sexual dysfunction? And is testosterone really good, especially when someone's trying to have a baby? Right. And so um, I'll start the, with the question about sexual dysfunction, but please make sure I don't forget to answer your question about testosterone, because that's really, really important. And I hope everyone stays on to listen to that answer. So about sexual dysfunction, the way I describe 
bit for men is I first thing I do is I just remind men that sexual function is way more complicated than our sort of cultural stereotypes would say. There's this sort of perception in American society that men are supposed to be able to get and keep erection like when the wind blows. And I think we all know that's just not true. So what I tell men is that erections take and sexual function takes many parts of the body working together. And so it starts in the brain. The most important organ for sexual function is the brain. So if men are tired, if they're distracted, if they're stressed, if they're anxious, they're not going to have good sexual function. So the brain is where it all starts. And then the signal for sexual function and erections then travels down the nerves of the spinal cord down towards the base of the penis. And down at the base of the penis, there are certain chemicals that get released that cause the blood vessels into the penis to widen and allow more blood to flow into the penis. Um, the penis is, is basically a, an organ that fills with blood to get an erection, and then the blood drains out of the penis when the erection is over. And so to get a good erection, it requires good blood flow. Um, those chemicals and that blood flow are facilitated by testosterone, meaning that good testosterone levels make those things easier to happen, but it's not the only factor that plays into how erections happen. So anything that's going to narrow the blood vessels that feed the blood into the penis are things that will make erections more challenging for men. And those are things like heart disease, high blood pressure, obesity once again, diabetes, smoking. All of those are conditions that narrow the blood vessels throughout the body. The reason that people that are smokers get heart attacks or strokes is because the blood vessels in their heart are narrowed. And so the heart or the brain is not getting enough blood. The same thing happens in the penis. The blood vessels that go to the penis get narrowed. And so men have trouble with erections. And so anything that's going to narrow the blood vessels is bad for the erections. Anything that can widen the blood vessels is better for the erections. Um, and so that's kind of how sexual function happens. It's actually a very careful coordination of multiple parts of the body that all need to be working. So to answer your question, Dr. Kowalczyk, about testosterone is testosterone is a necessary component to sexual function in men, but it's not the only component. And we need to be really careful about to whom we prescribe testosterone. I think, frankly, that the pharmaceutical companies, not all of them, but some of them, have been very effective at advertising and pushing out this concept that low testosterone is the cause of, and then the solution to, all of the ailments of men. And whether that's a man is tired, or if he's uh, low sex drive, or whether he's depressed, or having trouble with erections. And yes, testosterone levels can influence how a man feels and how he performs sexually, but so can how much sleep he's getting, so can how much exercise he's getting, so can his weight and his diet and his uh, stress or anxiety. And so there's lots of things that play into how a man feels. There are some men that have low testosterone levels that absolutely benefit from treatment, but frankly, there's lots of men who don't. And um, in particular, some of the men that I think don't benefit from treatment are those young men that are still trying to have children. And the reason is, is that, and this is a little counterintuitive, but taking testosterone creams or gels or shots will actually lower a man's sperm production. Mm. And that is counterintuitive, and I'm happy to go into the details if your audience you think would like that. But the key message that I want your audience to remember here is that if, you wanna if a man wants to have children in the future, please do not start taking testosterone medication. Please talk to your doctor about alternatives to raise your testosterone in a way that's safe for your fertility. Got it. And, and um, I have uh, one last question, and then we want to kind of find out how, let the audience know how to get a hold of you. So my last question is, how do you work up a guy with fertility problems when you see him? 
Yeah, so the first thing I'll tell guys, it's not that bad, right? So don't be scared. It's normal to be nervous. Um, and so what we do is first thing we do is we talk and I talk through many of these factors that we just discussed here together about lifestyle and history and how long they've been trying for a pregnancy. I do a very gentle physical exam, focusing on making sure that the penis and the testicles feel normal. And then we do some blood tests. We check testosterone and some of the related hormones. And then we ask men to provide us a semen sample. And again, while as awkward or unfamiliar as that may be, it's actually a process that most men are probably pretty familiar with. We basically give them a private room and a, and a plastic cup, and we ask them to masturbate privately and collect their semen into that cup, and then which we then analyze. So it is um, painless, it is gentle, and it is not nearly as scary as men may think. Got it. And then we take that information, and then together, you and I uh, kind of make a plan. And, and treatment options could be fertility medications that guys can take, as well as women, uh, things like insemination, we're taking the sperm and put it into the uterus, IVF, uh, or you can, we work together with the TESA. Uh, which you cut into the testicle to get sperm that way and then give me the sperm for the uh, eggs to fertilize. So um, a lot of things that we can do together. And, and it's always been a pleasure working with you, Dr. Dupree, in, in making family dreams come true. So, um, Anne, did you have any questions? How can people get in touch with you, Dr. Jim? Because there are probably a lot of men out there, young and a little bit older, who would be uncomfortable talking to someone, but you seem like the perfect person to talk to. It, it's easy to talk to you and you encourage people to come and discuss these issues. How, so how can we get in touch with you? Well, first of all, thank you, Anne. We try very hard to make this process easy for men because we understand how hard it's been to even get to the point of calling us. Mm -hmm. So they can call. So call our phone number. Our phone number is 734-936-7030. Again, that's 734-936-7030. Um, and, and I work at the University of Michigan Department of Urology. You can also Google my name, Jim Dupree, Department of Urology, University of Michigan, and you can find our information. I see patients three ways. Physically, I see them in a clinic that we have in Livonia, physically in a clinic that we have in Ann Arbor, and I'm also doing a lot of video visits these days. And eventually men will need a physical exam, but I'm also happy to meet men over video if that would be more comfortable for them. Dr. Jim Dupree, Michigan Medicine Urologist, thank you so much for all this information and for all of your time today. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. You've been listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. On behalf of my fantastic co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, I'm Ann Thomas, and we hope you have a great night. The Healthy Woman Show with Ann Thomas and Dr. Carol Kowalczyk has been presented by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. <laughs>